This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics, and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash longread. Hi, I'm David Wolfe, editor of The Guardian Long Read, and today we're doing something a little bit different on the podcast. Instead of the normal archive episode, we're bringing you a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into producing The Long Read with the help of two writers you might know, Long Read regulars Samant Subramanian. Hello. And Sophie Elmhurst. Hey. Welcome, guys. Nice to be here. So we've been doing The Guardian Long Read for nine years now. We started in September 2014 with a piece by the late, great Ian Jack. And since then, we've published, I think it's 1,188 pieces since then. And for years, actually, we've been talking about doing either a book or a magazine to bring together a bunch of our pieces in a kind of solid form. And I'm really excited that this week we are finally publishing this. It's the Guardian Long Read magazine, and we've got 10 pieces from the last year, beautifully designed by Chris Clark and Bruno Hayward. And it's an amazing collection, and we wanted to use that as an excuse to take you behind the scenes and give you a sense of how each piece comes together. So I just wanted to ask you guys a few questions about the pieces in the mag and your pieces generally. Sophie, your piece in the magazine is about condoms. I actually can't remember how this piece came about. It was your idea, David. Was it my idea? (laughs) Yes. Really? Yes. Okay, because I was going to say like, oh, someone I have a vague sense that I suggested a not weed piece to you. This is um, why we're here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've just <laughs> done this to make myself look good. Exactly. <laughs> what, Sophie, why did I suggest that you do a I mean, it's a really good condoms. question you should really be asking yourself, David. But I think maybe in my head when I was doing it, it was a kind of brother piece, if you like, to the Tampax piece we did um, a few years ago, which was my idea. And I guess, I don't know, we think along the lines of our genders or anyway, but for, for whatever reason it, it, it had uh, come to you. I think you'd read something about the origin story of condoms and you um, were interested oh, in the yes. history. So how, how do you go about after receiving this bad idea uh, turning it into <laughs> no, it was like a No, I immediately thought it was a good idea. I mean, how could it not be? I guess like or an idea that always appeals to me is one where it feels like, you know, there's just a world behind it that you don't know anything about. And so that's just like a gift for curiosity. And... I guess I went to the most obvious place, which was the biggest maker of condoms in the world, which is Durex. But I knew that, I don't know, I don't know what you feel about this, month, but to me, like, I can't very easily just write about a thing. I need a person quite quickly. In this process, was sort of luck and came quite late in the sort of doing of the, the piece. But I think, yeah, it was sort of the first thing you have to do is get the access, right? Mm. And how did you know when, what's ben. his name? Ben. Ben Wilson. 
How did you know that Ben was your guy? God, I got lucky. So Ben Wilson is the global category director for intimate wellness. And the first, you know, doing any piece like this, especially if you're doing like an industry or a brand, you've got to get access to this, what is, tends to be quite a faceless corporation, which can take a long time. So eventually I'd got this and was on a trip to Thailand to go and see the condom factories. And I met Ben Wilson for the first time in the lobby of the hotel that I was staying in. And I was like, ah, oh, thank God. Um, because within sort of five minutes of talking to him, I knew that he was going to be incredibly good value. And I think you, I don't know if you find this, I, Samantha, but I think you sort of, you sort of know quite quickly if someone's going to be a character or not, or a potential character. And as the day went on, he was just giving great stuff for, for, <laughs> from the beginning. And um, I just knew that then it wasn't going to just be a piece about a thing of an object or like just the history of the thing, but I could like build it around this character. And that would be, I think you, in fact, is this your idea, which I've trotted out a few times, the idea of having like a donkey in the piece? I, not not original to me. Not I, original I, to I stole you. that from Lawrence Wright, the New Yorker right. writer, but it is a useful concept. It's a useful concept. idea. You want someone, something, an animal to carry you through. And yeah, he was, yeah, sort of nominated himself as the donkey, I guess, pretty quickly. This is kind of the archetypal long read, right? Which is like there is an everyday object out there that nobody thinks about. And our entire purpose is to explore the world behind it, as you said. And the donkey, I, I, I tend to think of the donkey as somebody who obsesses over that everyday object 24-7 mm. in a way that we want the reader to obsess over that object for about 15 minutes. <laughs> and so it's always useful to find that parallel to the reader in the object's universe. And then you're kind of set. Well, I should say that the piece that Samant's written in the magazine is about not weed. So it's not totally dissimilar in that it's like the one word story idea. But interesting thing about your piece is it has characters, but I'm not sure it has a main character. So I'm interested about in how you went about putting it together because it's not quite the same approach to structure as with Sophie's piece. Yeah, although I'd say it's similar. I mean, in both cases, there are numerous people, I guess, who tend to obsess over these respective subjects, topics, objects. But in my case, I just found so many of them, I decided I would try to fit more than one of them in. But these are generally people who think about this 24-7. And it's sometimes it's a journalistic privilege to be sort of allowed into that world for a little while and get to see it from their, from their eyes. So tell us about like maybe one of the, the people in your piece. Well, the guy I liked to write about the most was a guy, he's a scientist called Dan who lives out in Wales. He used to be attached to the university, and then now he has a consultancy that goes around destroying invasive species. But the species that he's obsessed about for the most part of 20 years, I think, is Japanese knotweed, this plant that grows over garden walls and under the soil and is almost impossible to eradicate. And he spent the better part of a decade, maybe more, testing out various kinds of treatments on a big plot of land near a river outside Cardiff. And he's, uh, he is the master of that little patch of land. And he knows exactly where cops of knotweed sort of went up at some point and where he killed another little bout of knotweed inflammation. And he can talk about it till the cows come home. But I love it in your piece where you also have that bit. It is him, I think, who briefly mentions how he used to make dens in it. Yes. And so when it, it's like when a subject, it's like when I found out with my guy in the condoms piece that he had decorated his home office with like loads of condom sort of memorabilia, paraphernalia, had a con old 70s condom vending machine in his house. And it's like when the obsession sort of crosses over or there's some like sort of filtering into personal life or family life, or, you know, it's gone beyond just like just professional obligation. And, right. and I love that moment in that piece where he kind of admonishes you. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you about the knotweed piece is it has this incredible 
final section and especially final line about the Japanese photographer who spent mm. a lot of time uh, tracking knotweed around the world and has sort of theories of how we should think about knotweed. I'm interested when, when you became aware of that photographer's uh, work during the reporting and how both of you think about endings of pieces. And sometimes I think the best endings are ones where it, it kind of feels like that was actually the starting point for the piece or how you were thinking about it, right? Like, you know, I, I think people call this writing towards the destination or whatever, right? Like, you know that that's where you're going. It's also like, the, in my opinion, the hardest part of the piece is like the final section, the final paragraph, the final sentence. And like, that is definitely one thing that distinguishes a good piece from like an exceptional piece. Because mm -hmm. if it's like, it all comes together with that final line, it's like, ah, oh, that feels mm. so good. Especially if, you know, you spent 20 minutes reading a piece, you want it to feel like that. So I'm just interested uh, with both of these pieces, uh, how, yeah, wh when the ending came to you and, and how you sort of were setting it up the whole way through. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a strange thing. I used to Google images of Japanese knotweed just to kind of get a sense of what the plant looked like before I went out into the field with Dan Jones. And the most artistic photos I always noticed were taken by this Japanese photographer. And I was like, who is this guy? And because the plant is called Japanese knotweed, I thought it made sense to reach out to him. And so we spoke on Zoom with the help of Google Translate and like a you know couple of other technological workarounds. And he answered questions on email. He was very polite and very sweet and gave me so much of his time. And you know, he has gone around the world photographing these stands of knotweed. And this guy is, has grown almost fond of the plant and kind of sees it as a living being on its own journey, just trying to live, not really particularly trying to infest the gardens and backyards of human beings in Britain. And so this interview with the photographer came quite late in the reporting. But when when it happened, sort of something clicks and you kind of realize that you have a section that is able to pivot the entire piece. And so you always like, as a writer, it's always nice to give the reader a little twist towards the end of a piece, just to get them thinking along a different line. It's like, I, what I loved about that ending is like, it's, it's sort of like an expansion as much as a twist, because you've sort of been going a lot, you start in this quite localized, like super localized way, and it sort of feels like this sort of fanning out as you go all the way along. And then by the end, you're talking about like man's relationship with nature. And it's that lovely feeling of like, ah, no, I see this is actually about way more than like, not weed in Wales. It's about like yeah. our whole way that we think of our lived environment and yeah. the, what we do with these things and are they pests. And I think that to me is like, the ideal achievement is like a bit of circularity, a bit of a sense of like you've planted seeds right at the beginning that you can come back to harvest or <laughs> something yeah. at the yeah. end. Yeah. But also I've definitely tried to do and don't always pull off, but like is take the reader somewhere new, like that you're not just sort of going back to where you've started or just sort of putting a sort of neat full stop on something, but it's like a kind of opening out, you know, you're introducing some extra layer or some element of the future maybe, or I don't know, whatever it is, but like some kind of idea of new territory in an ending, I think is quite important as well. How did you think about like structure for the condoms piece? Well, I feel like we, I mean, that's quite an, a good one to talk about in terms of like the editing process, because I think it was definitely one thing and became another thing in part in that very fruitful, rigorous process that uh, you make us go through, David. But I think I'd always thought once I sort of knew he was going to be my like my central character and the person who was going to kind of carry the story story then that's not enough it wasn't just going to be a profile of him because it was really a profile of the, the condom so like I needed to tie him in with that idea of, of the story I was trying to tell of the condom and that is that was partly a historical story but I realized and this is quite a kind of it's almost a cliche I suppose but you know you need to sort of figure out quite early on in the process what's the question that you're asking what you're trying to answer and 
I guess I felt like the, from talking to him and, you know, you do often get that from your subjects as opposed to just from your own sort of abstract thinking, but that his like entire professional quest was to sort of perfect this thing and like to try and make the ideal, the perfect, the most desirable, most sellable, crucially, a condom and this thing that was generally is fairly unloved. So I guess that became my kind of motivating question and that, you know, that is the sort of thing that, that kind of, yeah, carries you through alongside just doing a portrait of a person. I feel like uh, one of Sophie's like uh, superpowers as a writer is in uh, the factory visit, which can be a very like dutiful kind of dull uh, scene in a piece of journalism. But actually, uh, Sophie mentioned her tampons piece earlier, and that involves a incredible trip to a tampon factory in Switzerland. And this one, the, I think you sent me maybe a message after you'd been to the tampon to the condom factory in Thailand, explaining like how amazing it was. And you have this amazing line about can can dancers or something uh, cabaret dancers, <laughs> yeah, yeah, their legs going up as the yeah the sort of production line of the condoms are on these like metal rods. Anyway, yeah, oh man, that's like the best part of the job, right? Like I just, I, in fact, Samantha and I've talked we talked about this before. Like we kind of have geeky conversations about like how like you just are in the sweet spot when you're on on like on location as it were but like out reporting but ideally from the most like technical unsexy kind of place and like to me that's just the whole like delight and challenge of the job is like being in a, a fairly well extremely sterile condom factory and figuring out how to turn that into something which is engaging but I think as a reporter and obviously in the writing but like you're just so hungry for anything that can make it vivid, that make it real, make it tangible, that you can like get your, you know, and that comes a lot for me, certainly through like personality and dialogue and, you know, just living people. But I think it's also those sort of vivid places which can really gift you that. Yeah, I think also uh, one of the things in both these pieces is like uh, Sophie once wrote a piece for us about a competitive plowing where she uh, went to the plowing tournament and described it. And I think like, it's an amazing piece, but that's a sort of easier piece to animate, obviously, than the two that you were writing, because uh, knotweed is, although it grows remarkably fast, it's not something you can describe beat by beat as you sit with the knotweed and watch it grow. And condoms, okay, they you could you could see them in action, but uh, <laughs> it would be a different kind of Inappropriate piece. Inappropriate. So, so kind of, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so making it real in this way, finding the place in Wales or whatever is, is key to it. So talking about the pieces you've written for us more generally, do you guys have a favorite piece that you have written for The Guardian Longread? Uh, my favorite piece of Sophie's is definitely the competitive flowing piece. Oh, really? That's oh, my yeah. favorite piece I've ever done. Absolutely. Oh, really? I love that piece yeah. so much. Well, uh, I mean, I love doing it. <laughs> it well, so I mean, fun. I think with something like condoms, obviously we all know that they exist and the art and craft of it lies in kind of animating and bringing to life this world behind it. But I had no idea competitive plowing existed. I barely had any idea of how people plow in the first place. <laughs> and um, and suddenly here was this sort of, you know, not only the world behind competitive plowing, but even the, the surface of it. I love pieces that go into little subcultures and somehow make them interesting and relevant to readers who've never touched a plow in their lives. Mm. How about you, Sophie? My favorite piece of salmons. Oh, well, yeah, why I not? I feel like that's, that's, that's yeah, I like yeah. that. I like that. Um, hard to choose. I feel like your most recent one, your profile of Michael Lewis has like got to be up there because, I mean, what a subject, what a meta subject to be like writing a profile of the sort of ultimate, the kind of king. And, the, the or profile writer. Yeah, yeah. right. And like, Anyway, I, I think have a you, should, you should just say who Michael Lewis is for readers who, because I think one thing that Samantha and I found when we were working on the piece and mentioning it to people is for people in journalism, it's like, oh, Michael Lewis, Michael Lewis, you know, right. uh, 
And then, but most people, partly because maybe the name isn't very memorable, are yeah. like, oh yeah, who's he? And then you're like, oh, he's the Moneyball guy or the yeah. big short. And then they're like, oh yeah. Um, so anyway, that's who he is. He's the Moneyball guy. He's and the, the Moneyball guy. guy, basically. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, well, he got lucky. You got lucky, right? In terms of like what you were writing about the whole Sam Bankman-Fried story. But there was just so many like meta things about that just made it so compelling because you got him at this moment where like the whole story was exploding and he'd got his subject at this moment when the whole story was exploding. And so... Yeah, I think one interesting thing about that piece actually was like when we commissioned it, we knew this book was coming, but I don't think we knew it would be so controversial or, or, or the approach he took. And actually, just say what the book is, because we haven't explained that. Well, the book is, you know, Michael Lewis caught Sam Bankman-Fried when um, SBF was still a titan in the crypto world and worth billions and billions of dollars and was supposed to apparently be the first person in history to be on track to be an actual trillionaire. Uh, and so he spent a little time with him then, and then he managed to stay close to Sam Bankman-Fried while the entire crypto empire that SBF built was collapsing. And he was there for the collapse. He charted everything that happened around him. He was in the thick of it. And he wrote this book in a great tearing hurry. I mean, within the space of a year, the book was published. Wow. And so it was It was supposed to be the definitive inside look at the downfall of this crypto king. And as it turned out, the book was not quite as critical or skeptical of SBF as maybe it could or should have been. And we've learned recently over the last couple of weeks, SBF has been convicted on all the fraud and ancillary charges that he was indicted for. So so that's why the book itself became controversial. And obviously, it was a big deal that Michael was less skeptical of SPF than he should have been. A lot was made of it, a lot of opinion around it. And people inevitably seemed to refer back to the long read profile to kind of explain how Michael approached it, because Michael was quite open in talking about that with me. So it was very, it was, it was, it was definitely a case of really sweet timing. And the idea, of course, as ever, came from David Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, no, they didn't. That one was fully from Claire Longrig, uh, uh -huh. the deputy editor. That was a brilliant idea. So it as was. soon as she said it, it was like, yes, that's a piece I really want to read. Mm. So. so you guys have both, I think your first piece for us was in 2015. It was the Greenpeace. That's, uh, that's right. Greenpeace yeah. Under Siege in India. And Sophie actually, I think, wrote the fourth piece we ever published oh uh, in 2014, which was about uh, sperm Oh my God, sperm, sperm banks. banks the condom, seriously, man. Like yes, that's true. <laughs> it's like you have a one-track mind. So I guess with the question, I, that's like nine years, basically, or eight years. Uh, curious how you guys think you've changed as writers over that period, like how you approach pieces differently. Obviously, you've written for loads of places, not just a long read, but just over that period, like when you're thinking about a piece, do you approach it differently? Do you take pleasure in different things as writers? In terms of how I think I've changed as a writer, I think, that, I mean, this is a really boring answer, but I think there's a sort of greater efficiency in that I think I have a better radar for what I think will work and for character and also for what I need. And I think I, you develop a kind of instinct for what is good material, what's necessary material, the reporting you need to do, the reading you need to do. The story is also for like structure and shape. I think my process then was like, learn everything, interview everyone, then like have this mass of stuff and then like from it try and excavate something. Whereas I think now I have a much clearer idea much earlier of like, okay, it's sort of going to be that and it's going to sort of be that sort of shape or have that sort of through line. I can be much more selective about the things that are going to inform that and the sort of put the meat on the bones of that. And 
sometimes that there's too little meat on the bones, I think, in a first draft, and I then have to go away and like fatten it up more. But for lots of reasons, I feel like that it, it's sort of prioritizing the, the story in a way and the structure for informing like what you need rather than it being what you have informing the, the story, if that makes sense. That's interesting. I remember when I was, I mean, so I did the Greenpeace piece and I was still pretty, well, still pretty green at this long form writing thing. And I was so, I was, I would always stress about the things you're supposed to stress about as a young writer, which is structure and the arguments that you're making and expressing them as clearly as possible and doing a whole bunch of research, like uh, just as Sophie said. And I think like over time, what I've come to sort of value or prize more in writing long reads is the ability to flit back and forth in tone or tenor, mm. obviously to have more fun with the writing itself and to worry less about the structure as a kind of rigid constraint, but also to change it up from piece to piece. So I think mm. before I did the Knotweed piece, I'd done this big piece about Sellafield, which is a nuclear facility in northern England that is being decommissioned. And that was very technical and required like a lot of understanding of nuclear science and physics and all of this stuff. And so when the Notweed idea came to me, you could kind of immediately see it for the version of the story that it would become, which is that something that would allow you to be out in the natural world a little bit and talk to people who geek out over something that is not particularly technical and to be a little lyrical in parts when you're describing things, but also a little tongue-in-cheek and wry when you're talking about knotweed experts. And so that was the kind of story I set out to write, and that's what happened. And then immediately after that, the reason I jumped to the Michael Lewis idea was because it had been so long since we'd done a profile. Mm. And what I wanted then, what I was really craving, is to just spend five days in the company of somebody who was fun and smart and learn what they do. It could have been anybody. But it happened to be Michael Lewis. So I think like going from genre to genre and mm. from tone to tone is always like the best part of this job. And you can always circle back to things that you particularly enjoy. So, but I just basically want to put that one back to you, which is, well, A, I'd really like to know how you think you've evolved as an editor over the last nine years. But also I feel like now you seem to have this very clear idea about whether an idea will work as a long read or whether it won't. And I want to know what that is um, based on. What Sometimes it... to the detriment of the writers. Yes, it's, it's painful. <laughs> Frequently, this instinct you mean you have, like but... You mean saying like, we can't do that story because I don't think it will work yeah, or yeah, within the story? Like, no, not that. What's the criteria in your head? I think most of the time it is just instinct. I, I don't want to pretend that I have a, I, I certainly don't have a checklist. I probably have subconscious theories, but I don't have a like, this won't work, this will work kind of thing. A lot of it is instinct or like, oh, I really want to read Sophie on this. But it's also like a pleasure of working with writers for a really long time. It's that I feel like there's a lot of trust between us, but I think there's also a sense of like, I think I know oh, that's a Sophie story or that's a Samant story. And sometimes also it can be fun to do something a little bit like counterintuitive, right? Like sometimes I think commissioning is about knowing exactly what a writer's strengths or interests are and then trying to like give them something that's like 20% off that so that they're discovering new things about themselves as a writer or, and the new interests uh, uh, in terms of subject matter and things like that. I think good editors, like fan is obviously like a deep like the fan identity is a deeply questionable one. But like, I do think you need to be kind of fans of writers and, uh, and admirers of them. And I think that enthusiasm of like, oh, I must read Sophie on that, or I must read Samantha on that. You know, that's how the commissioning process comes. So this, the, the Long Read magazine comes out now. This is ninth year uh, of the Long Read. And what would you, if, if people are being introduced to the section through the magazine now, 
How would you explain how the section has changed mm. since 2014? Like, what do you do differently? Have your instincts changed? I think in our first two or three years, partly because we were still working out, like, how does the long read fit within the Guardian ecosystem? Because the Guardian covers so much, right? So sometimes it's about picking subjects that the Guardian's unlikely to cover in at all or in a lot of depth. And, and likewise, I think since 2014, I've come to think more about the particular value of stories about Britain and particular value of stories about basically anywhere except America. I think of, for instance, Armand Seti wrote a piece for us about the Viapam scam, which was a big, a huge story in India where it was to do with a cheating scandal at various um, exam schools, if I'm remembering this That's correctly. Right. And I mean, it was unbelievable corruption, literally dozens of mysterious deaths, like an extraordinary story. And it was obviously everyone in India knew about it. But he wrote this piece for a global audience on it. And if we hadn't done that, I don't think any, anyone else is going to do 6,000 words on that, right? I also think of like Tom Lamont's piece about British pubs as like a sort of piece that showed the way of what we have to do, because that was kind of a, a 10,000 word epic uh, on a subject that has been covered lots and lots, the decline of the British pub. But it was the story of one particular family and it was just done in, with this depth and love and uh, intimacy that you just very, very rarely encounter in like journalism about Britain at that length in this kind of uh, cinematic way. And I think actually it was like a friend of mine, Daniel, who said at the end of that year that that was such a valuable piece because it would only appear in The Guardian Long Read. And so more and more I kind of have been thinking about like, mm. what's a piece that only we would do? And those are the pieces that I most enjoy commissioning. So thanks. It's been really interesting to hear what it's like for you guys, even though we email all the time, we hardly talk about this stuff. So thanks again for coming in, Sophie Elmhurst and Samant Subramanian. You can find their work on the Guardian website. I hope it's given listeners a bit of an insight into the work that goes into what you hear each week on the podcast and read in the paper. Don't forget, you can pick up a copy of the Long Read magazine featuring Sophie, Samant and eight other brilliant writers uh, if you go to theguardian.com slash longreadmag. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you than make that's a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. 
Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.